Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Protests that followed the killing of George Floyd in May started with a focus on police brutality. But six weeks later, a dominant theme is the removal of monuments and memorials. Protesters have torn down or vandalized dozens of statues connected to the Confederacy and to other historical figures like Christopher Columbus, for example. Meanwhile, many governments and universities said they would also remove monuments or rename buildings. And the efforts have gone global, with statues being toppled in recent weeks in the UK and Belgium, South Africa, and elsewhere around the world. Once revered religious figures have also been targeted. Several statues of St. Junipo Serra, the banished priest who evangelized California, have been torn down because there are allegations that he approved the enslavement of Native Americans at his missions. And on Friday, the University of Pennsylvania said it would remove a statue of revivalist preacher George Whitfield from its campus because of his advocacy of slavery in Georgia. Well, this isn't the first time that statues have been torn down en masse amid widespread protests. To take one example, after Constantine allowed Christianity in the Roman Empire, Christians tore down so many statues in Athens that they reportedly became known as, quote, the people who move that which should not be moved. Early church Christians battled each other over religious iconography. Reformation Christians inspired another round of eager statue smashing and memorial removal. We're going to be talking about how much are these earlier Christian battles over statues like the current news and what have Christians learned that might help us understand the calls to remove statues today, whether we should even be creating memorials and monuments in the first place. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Morgan Lee, this is part of the program we call the Gut Check. What's your gut check as you watch the statues come tumbling down? So some things that happen in current events I think are really hard to talk about maybe like having like an in-depth water cooler conversation on but statues actually seem really interesting to talk about in many ways for that water cooler conversation partially just because there's so much fodder there and so I mean I just have I've had a couple of fruitful conversations about trying to trying to make sense of if there should be some sort of like prevailing larger logic or I don't know what the right word, framework for what statues come down, when statues come down, how statues come down, who should take them down. And I think all of that is really interesting because within these types of discussions, we're also talking about how do we honor people? How do we remember people? Who gets statues? Why are statues there in the first place? And what does our society value? Which, of course, I really like having all of those types of conversations and really sinking my teeth into that. So I've enjoyed the conversations that have been raised by all of this. You know, I was just in a park in Chicago last night and I 
was telling my friend, because there was a statue right there, that that statue, there's only two statues of women in all of Chicago, and that park had one of them. Uh, at the other end of the park, there was a bust, which I'm not sure if that counts as a statue or not, of the Chinese American activist whom this park was named after, which I thought was interesting that the park contained both of those. All of this has renewed my interest in just the different ways that we try to help remind the public about spaces, right? To try to educate people ostensibly and in many ways, to some extent, get people on board with celebrating and remembering things and and kind of the larger dynamics of how there's so much that goes into, how do I say this? There's just in many ways kind of a fight over how we're remembering history all the time. That's kind of why I like having these discussions. I don't know if that's exactly a gut check. There's more of a gut check of how I feel about the actual discussion itself and that it's generated. Chicago hasn't had that many statues that I know of that have been under threat. And so this conversation feels a little bit more distant than me. I have a sister who lives in Richmond and Richmond has been much more ground zero for statue removal. In fact, the governor of Virginia most recently said that they will be taking down all the statues that are on public grounds that also honor Confederate heroes. And I thought that was really interesting to hear him say that, you know, here in Illinois, we don't necessarily have some of those conversations coming our way as much. But yeah, I think there's a lot there and I'm really glad we're going to talk about it today. What is your gut reaction, Ted? My gut reaction, I mean, you know, I... I will try to avoid my my world wearied response that I did to too many of these gut checks. I will say, as I've watched some of the outrages over some of the statues, you know, so you know, obviously there's there's been some statues where you look at me go, now why why was that statue targeted? And there's been a few times when they've asked people who've ter- torn down a statue, and they go, well, we, we're we're tearing down statues. This looks like someone who should be torn down. There's people trying to make make craziness out of this, right? There's people using all of this as as uh, look how crazy the left is. People using this as look how racist the right is, and there's a lot of truth in some some of those conversations. For me, I was more interested just to think for a minute about like, boy, when was the last time we saw a really good image of a human as our memorial, as like a memorial or as a statue or just something that we want to? I was just wondering about how much our contemporary, you know, aesthetic is playing into this. Because you know, if you go to Washington D.C., there is a certain power in the Korean Veterans Memorial, which is you know soldiers going through this greenery. It's it's it's, it's very nice, man. I'll tell you, like the overwhelming feeling you get. Uh, at the Vietnam Memorial is just so different. It's just so different between having, you know, uh, images of people and and names of people. I I just find one much more powerful than the other. And that got me thinking about, yeah, like at Wheaton College, which is, you know, where I went. Yeah, there are these kind of, you know, old, you know, like you said, busts, and, and there's not like a lot of statues, but there's busts of the old presidents and some some folks. In, in one of the buildings, they put in this eight foot, I guess it's an obelisk. It's a monument anyway. It was at the it was at the grave of this abolitionist. He has a he has a great story, but in some ways, I just, I just find the the obelisk that was this guy's grave marker more compelling than the busts of these other guys who you know kind of become these like lucky charms as people like rub their noses as they go past and no one's like doing anything like venerating these things and i just thought well how much is that because just our aesthetic has changed and we don't really care about lifelike head busts right now we're much more drawn to more symbolic images i don't know that's why we got a smart guest to talk about some of these things because all i got is questions our guest is also Wheaton College connected. Matthew Milliner is Associate Professor of Art History at Wheaton College. His specialty 
his Byzantine and medieval art, but I've appreciated also his most recent work on G.K. Chesterton and Native American art. Check out some of that on YouTube or at the Wade Center's website. He's written in the New York Times recently, and you may have read his piece in CT back in February on Groundhog Day, Mary, and the Feast of the Presentation, one of my favorite pieces we've run recently. Matthew, welcome to Quick to Listen. Thank you. Well, let's start your art history. Let's do a quick kind of historical survey here. I know you have some good ways for us to think about what's going on, but I referenced this kind of early Christian story in the 300s when Christianity became okay. And and I guess the story is that Christians went crazy and started tearing down all the pagan images. Is that accurate? Is that limited? Or is that kind of Christian writers like Eusebius saying, kind of pulling either images from Elijah's confrontation with Baal or some of those kinds of things? If it's inaccurate, there are a lot of brilliant forgeries out there that um, have (laughs) successfully transported back in time and carved crosses onto statues of the head of Aphrodite and that that have survived to this day. It is accurate. This was done. You go to Egypt and you'll just see a cross carved into this beautiful hieroglyph, a Coptic cross. This, in some senses, this breaking of images is, is the birthright of Christians. People who moved that which should not be moved, as you said, the way Christians are described. What's funny is when I was first getting acclimated to art as a Protestant and learning that art history mattered, we were embarrassed about our iconoclastic heritage. Oh, just put that out. Oh, isn't it horrible that we did that? Now we love art. And now it's like, bring that out of the closet because it's cool again. (laughs) Iconoclasm is cool again. Yes, we were the ones that did it first. Yes, yes. If you're tearing down statues... What a, what an honor to be known as the people who moved that which should not be moved. The ministers who gather together as Silent Sam goes down and are singing as something is is taken is an idol is is removed. So that is an element not just of the Protestant tradition. It is the universal DNA of what it means to be a Christian. Catholics will tell you otherwise, it's not true. Orthodox will tell you otherwise, it's not true. You look into their history, it is an image-breaking thing to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your ego is getting a cross carved into its forehead, and your idol of yourself is being drowned with Jesus. And so that, in some senses, it's, it's there. There's nothing surprising about it. This has happened many times before, and Christianity has a part to play in it. If you stop there, that's when it gets boring. It doesn't stop there, but that's exciting. And I want to say this, Morgan, oh, I mean, the thing about, that's what Chicago wants to think about it, that it doesn't have a bunch of images that it's had to push away and that it didn't go in an iconoclastic ravage against the people who are here first, right? And I think, Ted, you're really onto something in the sense that our aesthetics have changed. And so it's not like you're just going to make this 3D realistic 19th century Augustus St. Gauden style image to replace something. All these things swirling in the air. But to get back to the history point, iconoclasm is the foundation of Christianity as it is. It just lays it out in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord, mean Caesar is not. Take down those statues from the center of the basilica and replace them with a two-dimensional mosaic of Jesus to remind us that the emperor of the universe is seated at the right hand of the Father, and there is a justice beyond what Caesar can give you. That's iconoclasm. But again, people stop there. Okay, let's go tear down every statue. No, 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 we have to keep going. That's only the first level, but it's an essential first level. I'm eager to get to some of that next level. Help me. I'm wondering, as Christians did go out tearing down these statues, 
you know, I know that the secular sacred divide was not as <laughs> not as clear, not as not as strong as as we have in this kind of modern modern era. But were there any anything that we that a modern person might go back and think, oh, that's more of a more of a secular image? Were most of these statues gods and goddesses and or Caesar himself, or were there like here's a rich guy who wanted a statue of himself and so he had one made? It's both and. It's not that every single statue in the ancient world was taken down. And that's what's so fascinating is sometimes they were repurposed, used in a different way, renamed. We're going to take this statue of Aphrodite and maybe be inspired by it as we move down the centuries, assimilating that understanding instead of the need to utterly destroy it. You only know so much once something has been taken down. But when you go through more than a few museums where you see those carved crosses, that's this, you're like, there you go, red-handed. You did it. And I think we have to affirm that that's necessary. And people love when they write their catalogs to make fun of Christians, see those Philistine Christians. And now that's not so cool because that's what we want to do. We realize the impulse to destroy an image is a part of justice. So we can, in some senses, look back and say, okay, see, we had a point in that regard because now our culture, you can just take a map of European iconoclasm, what happened in the 16th century with Protestants. And I like to take that map and just in class, slap it right next to the Confederate monuments map from the New York Times with the category of which ones are taken down, which ones are about to be taken down and say, okay, interesting, isn't it? But again, to stop at the iconoclastic impulse would be inadequate. I think Christianity itself had to realize we need to move past that icon-breaking stage and move into the recreation, assimilation, and creative responses, not just destructive responses to the idols that are around us. So I want to pause you right there, Matthew, because I want to get into all of that stuff later into this conversation. But I wanted to just ask a question about statues themselves. I don't think many of our listeners have personally made statues before. So maybe you could give us a sense of just how hard it is to make a statue and what it actually meant to make statues of these different, in this case, Greek gods and goddesses or Roman emperors. Where were they a lot of times? And what did it actually entail to try to take these statues down? Well, it's as difficult as it was a week ago to unsuccessfully try to tear down an equestrian statue of Andrew Jackson in front of the White House, right? They, did, they, they could not do it. And now there are four people that are brought up on charges, the ones that were at least caught. That technology of creating those kind of imperial portraits was required resources. And the early Christians did not have the resources to produce those statues, nor did they want to, because they didn't want to put Jesus on a war horse in bronze, because not only didn't they have the money, because Christianity was a persecuted minority at first, but even when they had the money, first of all, that style was changing, because to create something that's too imminent, that's too right here, this emperor will do it all for you, was seen as idolatrous, because of course, Christianity inherits the DNA of Judaism. I mean, if you look at the Carolingian attempts to create an equestrian statue of Charlemagne on a horse from the ninth century, it's laughable. It looks like Muppet Babies or some kind of <laughs> squat little, strange, cartoonish, baby-like figure. And you're like, you don't know how to do it, right? Because in some senses, those were the ages of gold, not the dark ages, because they were glittering with mosaics instead. The reason they're not pursuing that technology of political imminent Caesar has it all is because the gold mosaics are punting to the other world, are lifting you into heaven and giving you an idea of a world that is saturated with God and moves you beyond the world to God. 
that's the early Christian cosmos. So they're not interested in that kind of statuary. But then in the Renaissance, when they redevelop that, it's immediately used to glorify political rulers. But in some senses, Christianity had to at least begin to tackle that possibility. And when we're looking at the 19th century, early 20th century statues that are being taken down right now, it is America trying to flex its aesthetic muscle to say, look, we can keep up with the standards of Europe and we can make beautiful big statues like they did in the Renaissance. So that's the long view history of where we're coming from. And if we're taking those down, we're in some senses in accord with some early Christian principles or not. I'm not saying that the people in San Francisco who just tore down a statue of a bust of Ulysses S. Grant and Cervantes of all you know people, they defaced to Cervantes. Like, are, are they <laughs> tilting at windmills there? Are, like, come on. It's like you have to be principled in the decisions that you're making. And I think you see an evolution and development of sophisticated thought about art that happens in Christianity that we don't know how to think in a sophisticated way about art. So of course, that's going to be our only response to it. Get rid of it. But if we inherit these lessons, we can move up the schema into a more sophisticated approach to these monuments. Let's start with some first principles here. I guess both in iconoclastic period with uh, between the, the Orthodox, but when when there was this debate about whether icons were okay or not, and then at the Reformation when various images were were removed and other kind of devotional objects. A lot of that, first and foremost, was in reference to the Second Commandment and the prohibition against graven images. I would assume played a large role. I'm wondering about even before that how Christians kind of thought through what the incarnation meant for the second commandment as we move from a Jewish understanding of the second commandment of you don't want to make an image of God because God is spirit and cannot be portrayed to understanding that there was, <laughs> that God actually has come to us in flesh, had an eye color, actually had a height, actually could be depicted if we had a camera. You know, what was some of the Christian thinking on the ways in which the incarnation changed, you know, images? And the Christian church, no longer as a persecuted minority, but they've torn down the statues. They got to now make some things of their own. They just started to do it. A couple centuries later, they're like, is there a theological rationale for this? And a bunch of people say no. And so they start to take some down. The historical arguments have been recently revised. And we've probably exaggerated the extent to which that happened because we heard the story from the perspectives of those who were criticizing those who tore down the images of Jesus. But it did happen certainly to an extent on theological grounds. God cannot get messy with this material stuff, and therefore you cannot depict him. And then, of course, the response, as you perfectly put it, was, well, I don't know. He seems to have gotten messy with material stuff when he became human and got crucified and rose again with the body. And so, yeah, we can make pictures of him. That's essentially what occurred. And that is a century-long theological debate, the decision was made that it is indeed permissible because he imaged himself first in Christ. It is not a violation of the commandment not to make graven images. That's God saying, wait, don't make pictures of me. Let me do that myself. Here I am, Jesus. Humility personified, gentleness and love. Now you can depict me because I humbled myself. Then it becomes a possibility. Now we can have a redemptive image that shows us and gives us a reminder of what it would have been like to have walked with Christ with the disciples. That is never at the cost of the invisibility of God. It shouldn't be. Sometimes it becomes that, but that's bad Christian visual theology. The image of Jesus has to be held hand in hand with the undepictability of the Father. And so the Protestants come along in the 16th century, hey, 
let's get rid of him. And I think they were right. They were right. And the Catholics did it before them because they knew it went too far. And so again, you have this rhythm of negative destruction of images, positive creation, and then some negative destruction again, moving toward positive. And we're feeling those rhythms now in this country. And this is an exciting time to be alive and to participate in these debates because we're in the first volley now. What's going to come next? That's when it gets interesting. Does it take on a different cast than when you move out of the realm of Jesus and back into the realm of everybody else who, you know, I guess bears the image of God in some way? I know in the Reformation, you have this question of, you know, obviously the saints, the human celebrities of the faith, the Reformers, not too keen, a number of the Reformers, I shouldn't say all of the Reformers, but there's this big fight in Wittenberg between Luther and forgetting his name at the moment. Karl Stott. Karl Stott. Yeah, there you go. Over, uh, over how far to go with some of these images. How much does, I guess we've moved out of the question of depicting God to the, to the thing of, oh, no, no, you can, do, you can do God okay. But the problem is you've got all these humans in your church. How does that come into play? Once you get Jesus permissible, you've secured Normandy, right? And the rest is just cleanup, right? So they came along and, hey, you can have images of the saints as well. Jesus was the hard one. It becomes okay from that point forward. And you can't worship them, right? And they never said they were. And that's the, a caricature that John Calvin projects onto the past, right? And in some cases, I think he was on target, but they weren't worshiping them as if they were the saints themselves. There were, in some senses, as we put it, not doors, but windows into the presence. And we believe those people are with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you have a picture of a deceased loved one in your home and you know they're with Christ, right? You're doing that. You're doing that. And you might, and your heart might inflame with love as you look at that image. That's what early Christian images of the saints offered us. And there was a theological council that, that deemed that to be permissible. And I think it's authoritative. I think we sh- it still works for us. Where I was going with that is I was wondering if there was a connection between some of the reformers looking at, you know, human saints and saying, you guys are giving too much attention to these human saints. These guys are fallen. They're, they're broken. We need to give attention to God alone. So I wonder if there's a connection that you see between that and some of the discussion right now between with, let's put the Confederate leaders aside, because that, that's very much part of the Jim Crow, you know, these statues going up, you know, 50 years after the Civil War, the so way of, you know, reminding African-Americans who's really in charge in town. Well, I guess some of these other images, you know, your, your Winston Churchill statue or some of your other, you know, your, to some degree, your Columbus statue maybe, where you have some people saying, hey, these guys need to come down. Well, you know, the George Whitfield statue, for example, where some people have you know, put that guy up because they're like George Whitfield, one of the giants of American religious history. And other people saying, dude, the guy literally wrote treatises supporting slavery in Georgia. That's a problem. Is the kind of debate over sinful humans and imaging them in church, does that have anything that we can take into the current debate? The choice to remove images didn't mean they went away forever. They just came back in a political form. So when you walk through Amsterdam, you go into these whitewashed churches and you'll see this like huge marble explosion of this strange form. And then you see a figure in the middle and who is it? Is it Jesus? No, it's some naval captain who's being honored in the (laughs) church. Um, And Jesus isn't, but he is at least. (laughs) And you're like, oh, that's what happens. The visual is going to be served one way or the other. And you see it in New York too. You you go to great places like St. Paul's right there 
near where the World Trade Center was. And you're like, oh my gosh, like there it is. An American political figure has taken over that space, which was intended to be preserved and kept clean. We have made our little Caesar images of one kind or another, even if we're honoring them as these great Christian heroes who did their service to their country. But to put it in a sacred space is really, it's like, wow. And so that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Again, you have to have a sophisticated interpretation as you go into these places. You might say, wow, that person, like, I mean, when it comes to, for example, an American flag in the sanctuary, some people say, that is just pure idolatry. Don't even get it close. Some other people might say, well, this is a holy Christian nation. I want it there. Some other people might say, well, it's a really, it's a nation that needs as much prayer as possible. So you better get it close to the altar because it's really dirty and it needs God, right? So there's all kinds of different ways of looking at these things. What I would say to anyone listening to this, audit your visual space. What is being honored? Just in a sense, like what, and, and when you when you walk through Protestant visual culture, you realize there have really been some errors made in this regard. And maybe we need to summon up our iconoclastic heritage that is shared with the entire Christian tradition. Again, that's what the Orthodox Church did when they, in the last 20 years, cleansed Russia of these images of Stalin and Lenin. In one case, they even put them into what's colloquially referred to as Stalin world. And this is park in Lithuania, Grutas Park, where they just took all of these images that were intended to provoke awe and wonder and fear. And now people can take their little family selfies as they go through these decapitated heads and busts of comedy. And it's one of the most redemptive things imaginable. These images that were responsible for the slaying of so many people have now been become jokes and, and funny almost. And that's the toppling of the idols in our time. So we're living through that again. And maybe that's what some of these missed opportunities with these statues that we're taking down. Wait a second, all kinds of stuff could happen with that Confederate statue to not let the next generation off the hook. It was interesting how you talked about the replacement of some of these images with political images as well. So the question is, what comes next? It is interesting how the the politics has played both sides, right? Because it wasn't the Pope who decided to start throwing out the icons, right? It's, it's, It's an emperor who kicks off the iconoclasm thing by saying, you know what? We shouldn't have images in our churches. The image of the emperor in the middle of the the square, maybe that's okay. But these icons in the churches, that's a problem where there's a little bit of theology in there, but there's also a little bit of a politician not wanting competing images. Oh, and it's idolatrous to the extreme. Like Constantine said to his mom, Helen, hey, can you give me one of the nails from that was pierced Jesus? And so I can slap it in the diadem on the top of my statue in the middle of Constantinople? use the other as a bit in the bridle of my war horse. And it's like, oh, Lord, Lord, have mercy on your church. Ah, no wonder he didn't get baptized till the end of his life. It's just, and, you know, we beat up Constantine and I can argue the other side too. But at the end of the day, it's like, oh my gosh, that's horrific. So right, you're right, exactly. Matthew, would you say that there's something that makes statues uniquely special and different from something like a mural or a painting? Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition has always felt just a little bit differently about three-dimensionality because it's so realized. It's so here. Even at Dura Europas, we have a Jewish synagogue that is filled with two-dimensional images of Moses parting the Red Sea, the survives from, from the third century. And they would certainly do that. But again, the statue is so much. There's maybe a good reason that that technology 
in some senses was lost for a while because it claims to offer a lot. It doesn't mean it can't be used redemptively. If you're a Christian trying to navigate a very complicated visual culture, it's always important to remember the icon is the break on visual culture. And that's why artists like Michelangelo, who are competing with visual culture at the highest level and remastering those classical ideals that have been forgotten, he defaults to the icon. He is going to the humble images in Florence and falling down in tears before them. I'm just going to reside with the face of an image of Christ that has been looked at over the centuries and slow myself down with a candle. There is your answer to the statue and its menacing power. Can you quickly tell us why? I'm sure that is a book. What is it about an icon that is different from um, maybe a, a Renaissance image of Christ with his disciples? They are deliberately restrained visual media, but the thing about the icon is, is this tradition visually that seeps through history and it contains all this wisdom. In some senses, they're intended to not paralyze, but restrain the mental faculties rather than delight and stimulate the eye and give you this sense of putting you in touch with God who is with us all the time. They work. They just simply work. And it, and it takes experience to undergo that. And it's an experience that many Protestants are recovering. And there are creative reinventions of that tradition for this day. In our art department classroom, we have the classic Sinai icon of Jesus that's at the foot of the mountain where God said, don't make graven images. And it's not breaking that commandment. And it's this glorious image, but right next to it, we have this image of the black Christ. And no, I'm not confused. I don't think Jesus was African, but yes, I'm not confused. I know that he identifies with his body, the African-American church, not to mention the church as a white person, I'm, he identifies with me too. But it's important for me to remember that. So I have this image and it just shows him and he holds in his hand the authorization for the image of the black Christ. And it says, whatsoever you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. So Jesus identifies as a lynched black man in America. He identifies. He says, that's me. And so of course we can have an image of that. And now again, you put that next to the image of a more accurate historical Jewish Jesus, and then you have a rich visual Christology that can guide us through these times. And that's the image I want to hold up right now and say, there it is. Look at this face. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Okay. 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 
based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November. It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I want to stay focused on Jesus, but you did say something that I, I want to also ask about, and this gets us back to you know what I was saying, my gut check at the beginning of the show. If I'm understanding you correctly, one of the compelling things and helpful things about an icon is that restrained nature to it. The fact that it is not trying to be photorealistic per se, it is not trying to deceive you into it being a full-on representation of the real thing. Obviously, apart from some of the politics, but would we be having less problem with some of these memorials if they were non-representational? Ah, that is gold right there. We were claiming so much with these huge bronze public statues that we're encountering the same problem because they're menacing presence of Silent Sam for an African-American student at UNC Chapel Hill. It's like, hey, I, and when you, you got to go to each of these places. You can't just look at the news articles. At least when I was at UNC Chapel Hill about five years ago when Silent Sam was still there, he just hovered over the quad And there's this statue of this muse guiding him. And then it says in the inscription, to the sons of the university who entered the war of 1861 to 65, not the Civil War, just that war, in answer to the call of their country and those whose lives taught the lesson of the great commander that duty is the sublimest word in the English language. But here's the thing. If you were there, the statue is no longer extant. It's been removed in the last year. If you just spent some time, you walk just a few steps in the other direction and you saw one of the most hauntingly beautiful sculptures that I know of in America right now. And it is a memorial to the forgotten founders of UNC Chapel Hill. And as you walk up to it, you just see this simple marble circle table. And you're like, oh, look, a little table where I can sit. And as you approach the table, you see that it is gifted by a class and you look and then you go underneath the marble table and you see hundreds of beautiful figures of slaves who built UNC Chapel Hill. And they're holding it up and saying, the people of color who made this education possible, who are holding it up for you, you didn't notice them, did you, when you were walking by this statue? It is so beautiful But the thing about it is you have to linger there and it invites you. And so because I gave it that time, that humble, small statuary that was doing the best iconoclastic response to Silent Sam imaginable. And I'm wondering, did it get completely ignored? The thing about Silent Sam, I think one of the reasons it had to come down probably is because it was just so menacing. It was so there. That's what it's like with Chip in Franklin, Tennessee. You modify that thing all you want. It's just so high. It's the most dominant thing. And so everyone has a right to be completely uncomfortable. That thing does need to be modified in an aggressive way. Historians, a Wall Street Journal article, fascinating about this. And these historians were debating, what do we do 
about the image of Abraham Lincoln in front of an emancipated slave. And the slave is on all fours right in front of him. And he is proclaimed as, as the great liberator above. And they found Frederick Douglass's commentary. And Douglass's commentary, it says, and I quote, what I want to see before I die is a monument representing the Negro, not couchant on his knees like a four-footed animal, but erect on his feet like a man. There is room in Lincoln Park, Washington, D.C. for another monument, and I throw out this suggestion to the end that it may be taken up and acted upon. What's going to be the creative UNC Chapel Hill, Frederick Douglass option? There's so many places in the country that are doing that that we're not talking about. Examples we've got to, we've got to move toward. Is the temptation then replace statues with additional statues that you know, would be, in this case, if you take Douglas's words, a, a statue of a triumphant black man who has resisted slavery? Or is it... Which has happened, by the way, because there's a Mary... Right across from that very statue, there already is a Mary McLeod Bethune memorial that is beautiful. It's right there. So so that's occurred, yeah. Well, and if going. you, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, you, you go onto that Capitol Rotunda and you just look around at the, the various statues that have been, you know, contributed by the states at various times without looking at any plaques or anything else. You can, you can count the dates. You can kind of, <laughs> you know what was made at what time, right? Some are more representational on what... I'm wondering to what degree is the answer like stop making statues of people? I mean, or, or is there still a really strong argument for the statues of people? There's the Ebenezer in terms of like the kind of Old Testament memorial is like, I don't know, stack a bunch of rocks on top of each other. Like that's only going to get you so, so far, but it's the biblical, it's the biblical no, precedent. No, it's tearing down the uh, angrily, the Henry Moore abstract sculptures from the mid 20th century. Like, oh, <laughs> right. But I think in some senses, abstraction has been very dissatisfying, especially for second half of the 20th century, early 21st century African-American artists. They're like, you know what? Can't exactly tell you what's going on. There's a reason that Titus Kafar, right, who is one of the great repurposers, there's a reason he is not a modernist. I want to paint as realistically as possible, or Kent Monkman, First Nations example. I want you to know, or Kerry James Marshall, most importantly, he starts in, he's like, I'm doing abstraction, but I can't communicate the aggression that my people have experienced in an abstract form. And so we still don't want to surrender the figure completely. And so this is where I think of all the cities that I've seen in this regard, and we're living through this history, so visit where you can because it's going to be changed the next time you go. I went to Bentonville, Arkansas and went to the Walmart Museum, walked out of there like, wow, it's a pretty interesting company. How great is America? And I walk across and there I saw the Confederate monument. And I'm like, oh my goodness gracious. You know what? They just announced its removal. I was just there two years ago. Astonishing how these things are happening. We had a trip, Christmas trip in December, 2019 to visit my brother-in-law in St. Augustine. So first stop in Franklin and we saw Chip and I was just like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, there it is, right? And I'm, and I'm reading up about it and trying to get a sense. And they're like, you can do anything to Franklin, but our boys, this is for our boys. Well, the art, you know what? More of our boys were lynched in that very square. So it's like, uh, who's that? It's like, uh, and so they, they've got some stuff to wrestle with. And I hope those conversations continue to be productive and lead to aggressive and interesting repurposing. But when I got to St. Augustine, I saw what a solution looks like. Because the African-American Museum there, because extraordinary civil rights history in that incredibly important early 16th century, pre-Jamestown, pre-Mayflower, all the stuff that happened in that important part of Florida. And you walk there and you saw indeed what people are wanting for. A, a Confederate monument that was not destroyed, but 
was repurposed. There were these plaques, historically contextualizing plaques placed around. Now, am I saying that that should happen to all the Confederate statues? No, I'm saying exactly what Ted was pointing to. There was no statue on it. It was just an obelisk. And so the words on the obelisk could be defeated and contextualized with the renewed words around the statue, the plaques that were placed. And this is as a result of the intense debates and conversations in St. Augustine of the entire community over a period of time that were very intense. And then my eyes were drawn to figures and I moved in the other direction. And I there right across from the Woolworth where they risked their lives to get a soda were the St. Augustine foot soldiers. Three African-Americans and one white man are placed, the ones, the civil rights activists who kicked off the movement there. And they are beautiful bronze cast figures with a description of who they are. And as a visitor to St. Augustine, I said, here is the St. Augustine option, which is what Charlottesville is in a gridlock over because it has more aggressive, more menacing statues to deal with, and people are dying, and it's horrific. But St. Augustine is, we could call it the, the Douglas option, we could call it the Augustine option, and it's a result of responsible debate and conversation and bearing with one another in love and listening to one another, and my goodness, it was exciting. There's hope and possibility in that city. And for some, it's like, that is too little. I want that uh, completely removed. But I think it really is a creative and redemptive option. And that's what happened in the wake of the Reformation. What's our historical analog? The beautiful Ignatian spirituality that emerges after the iconoclasm or the beautiful Lutheran images that emerge after the iconoclasm that communicated the message of grace. Those are the options we've got to look for. And there are other places in the world that have shown the way outside of America too. Berlin being a classic example. So Matthew, I'm I'm curious as we close this conversation, you know, what type of charge would you have for the church at large, many of whom do not necessarily identify as artists, but nevertheless have strong and robust opinions about statues and so forth? What type of charge might you have for Christians who are in the arts community and what might you encourage them to think about and potentially do? Understand what's going on in contemporary art, right? That's so important. Come on. I mean, we are just not in the traditional statue-making, catch-up-with-Europe culture anymore. And so there are so many fascinating and exciting developments that have occurred, such as Liebskin's Holocaust Museum in Berlin or the Eisenman depressive, repentant depths that you have to sink into as you go underground, as you walk through that city, or in our own country, the extraordinary new lynching memorial that has been made in Montgomery that you were brilliant enough to run a cover story on, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. That is both abstract and figurative at once. It is beautifully postmodern in the sense that it fuses those two together. Understand that those things are happening and maybe the grandmother of them all is that beautiful scar that you referred to, Ted, in our National Mall which is Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial. We don't need a triumphant aggressive because that statue, we need a place to weep because that's what Vietnam was for us. We need to repent. And so, so many exciting things are happening in memorial culture if we'll catch up on that or artists repurposing dictatorial statues in garbled ways. So understand what's going on there and then stop pointing fingers at the South if you live in the Midwest and realize we've got some stuff to cover ourselves because we're sitting on land 
for people who received and embraced the gospel with joy and then were ejected by Andrew Jackson. We're made to leave. And I've shared this with some people. I know not everyone's in the Midwest, but 1838, the first home built in Wheaton is also the first year that you have that enforced trail of death. And if you follow along that trail of death with the remaining Potawatomi who do it every five years, you will get a perspective of redemption, hope, and healing on this country. But you don't get that until you deal with the suffering, until you deal with what happened. And there are ways to do that. Chicago doesn't want to understand the history of what it did. It's all available to us. It's all there. The speeches that those Native Americans made are are accessible to all of us. And they were made in the name of Jesus to rebuke the skyscrapers that have been created around us. We just have to hear that. And when we're hearing that, we're going deeper into the body of Christ because that's Jesus speaking to us through his persecuted people. And what's that going to look like? And that's, you know, now we're talking about 10-year games, right? When we're looking at a town away from us, the Winfield Mounds, which is a glorious remains of a Native American civilization here that was named after the man who presided over the Trail of Tears and fought Black Hawk in the Black Hawk Wars. And Lincoln was a part of that war as well. So we've got to ask those questions to have that conversation with the Ho-Chunk tribes who are rightfully the descendants of those memorial mounds and saying, what would you have a say about this? And you're likely to find a Christian among them because the majority of Native Americans are Christian in this country. Help us have that conversation and then bring in the people who are the descendants of Winfield Scott and say, we don't want to caricature him. You get the town named after you, but what are we going to do about these mounds? That's the question that Chicagoland people have to ask. It's so easy to make my little trip through the South and say, oh, look how bad they are. And when I just, I'm filled with obelisks here in the Midwest that are announcing the triumph over the Native Americans. But there are some places, such as the Treaty of Greenville Memorial in Ohio, that are deeply redemptive. But people don't visit that. That show both sides of the equation. We've got to do a whole audit of what our memorials have done in this country and realize that we are in no way safe here in the Midwest because the wonderful work of repentance is ahead of us and we believe in grace. I'm sure that there's stuff for the folks that live on the West Coast, too, and other parts of the country. So we'll save making sure we ask them to hold themselves accountable for a different show. But Matthew, thank you so much for just an extremely expansive conversation and to helping us just think through the stuff that we see and kind of take for granted at various times. I know there was just a lot of really fascinating stuff packed in here. And for people who have thoughts or reactions or comments to the stuff that we talked about today, please send us an email and give us your two cents on this. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, I have a guess about what you're going to say, but please confirm if I am right or wrong. Yes, it was my birthday weekend, as well as my daughter's birthday weekend, as well as our country's birthday weekend. Yeah, I got new board games for my birthday, as did my daughter. So it was board game crazy this weekend, and that brought me great joy. My recommendation for this week is a party game called Wavelength, where you have a spectrum that changes every time. You have to kind of, like it might say, fancy versus mundane, and you have to give a word that is somewhere on that spectrum that matches where the spectrum is, and then the other person has to kind of point their pointer to where they think it is. You might say, you know, if it was hot and cold, you might say coffee. It might be straight in the middle because you could have your coffee hot or cold. Anyway, super fun party game, lends itself to a lot of fun, and is not one of the games that kind of makes people annoyed if they're if they're hyper competitive or if they hate competition. So 
Wavelength. That was my joyous game this week. Morgan, what was your precious moment other than the heat? So one of the things that I did outside this weekend was I went camping and it was a little bit of an adventure to get there. I went to some place outside of Juliet, which is a city that's, I don't know, southwest of where Chicago is located. I biked to the campground, but about 10 miles outside the campground, I got a flat tire. I had to walk the rest of the way, <laughs> which was interesting. Probably the best part with, about it. With camping that. gear? Or did um, someone I take your a, gear with for you? My camping gear consisted mostly of like my sleeping pad. Oh, man. I didn't have a sleeping bag. It was too hot for a sleeping bag. I also had like five apples, which I ate along the way. <laughs> I've never loved apples more. This is, this is a good, this is, this is a, this is a good, I, I like, I want to read your, your camping, camping gear with Morgan. The just apples and you can sleep on the ground. That's basically what you need for camping. A bike and apples. That's awesome. I love it. It would, and bug repellent. <laughs> <laughs> So it was honestly, though, by the time I got there, I didn't get to the campsite until 10 at night, but it was glorious because I just walked through the woods with fireflies for 10 straight minutes after I got there, which is to me like what exactly everything I love about summer. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Wonderful. So, yay. My precious moment is not getting run over by a car while I was walking my bike. (laughs) Sounds very (laughs) precious. What's your social handle there, Morgan, for those who haven't picked it up the last 50 episodes? For sure. M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Okay, Matthew, go ahead to you. So I had a birthday weekend too. I have a niece that was born on my birthday. Grace Elizabeth McCaffrey, born on my birthday. And so I said to my cousin Casey, I always knew I was your favorite. And thank you for waiting for me and for honoring me in this way. That's fully confirmed. No, but what a joy to have a, a niece born on, on your own birthday. So That I'm is great. About that. That's that, pretty precious. That is, that, precious. That, is high, that is about as precious Super as precious. it gets. And where can people find you and your work? Millinerd.com for an antiquated blog that still exists circa 2002. So we've been pushing hard, right? Going on, I don't know, a while. Matthew, can you spell it for everyone in case they want to find this blog? M-I-L-L-I-N-E-R-D. Dot com. So, so how did you come up with this pun? I don't well, know exactly the way what to call it. this always happens. I got made fun of in, in middle school. There you go. My last name is Milliner. <laughs> Someone said Millinerd. I said, "Hey, thanks for the blog." I've it took taken me a while, that. but I, that's right. So that's that's my Twitter handle too. But if I can bear to look at Twitter, I'm finding it very difficult. I just yeah. So if you're brave enough to still be on Twitter, you're made of better stuff than I am. But I'm there, and sometimes I'll post things. Oh, I'm there so I can have interesting, long conversations like this where we can get complicated, and then I post it on Twitter, hold my nose, and then come back. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Matthew Linder, and Boonie Ashola does the transcript. The music is by Sweeps. Thank you, everyone, who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. If you would like to be one of them, you can go to orderct.com slash podcast. We have lots of cool articles that are similar in scope and depth and ambition as the conversation we had today. So more of what you would like this show please rate and review the show on apple podcasts you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you all next week